Welcome to Millennium Live, a digital diary podcast. We sit down with the top C-suite executives and talk all things digital transformation. Today's episode is brought to you by Millennium Alliance co-founder, Alex Sobel. His guest is someone who has been repeatedly recognized by Forbes as one of the most influential CMOs in the world and by Adweek as one of the top 20 marketing technology executives. David Edelman, executive advisor, who until recently was the CMO of Aetna. David has attracted millions of followers on his LinkedIn blog. He has truly built a global reputation in the marketing and healthcare industry. And today he and Alex discuss this journey, starting as early as his music and theater days in college and how those skills transferred over to his latest role as CMO. Hi, Dave. It's great to be with you. Very much looking forward to having you come back and keynote for us at the Millennium Alliance. For those who don't know, Dave is keynoting our digital healthcare transformation assembly, which is taking place online from December 3rd to the 4th. We are very fortunate to have him as a keynote speaker and as an ally to the Millennium Alliance. His experience in his career and in his personal life have made him one of the most influential people in marketing all over the world. And that's not just me saying that. That's um, organizations like Forbes saying that and a number of other prestigious uh, institutions and publications that have laid a lot of praise to the work that you've done. And part of one of the reasons I wanted to do the interview with you was definitely talk about the work that you've done over the course of your career, but also to start a little bit earlier to find out a little bit more about yourself and your family and where you came from and how you picked the path in life that you chose. Because I, I find that, I find that, you know, potentially the most interesting part because with a lot of people that have had a lot of success in their life, sometimes there are common instances that they refer back to where they have to make certain decisions that will dictate which way they're going to go ultimately that will indicate where their life is going to go. So from a personal perspective, I'm always fascinated about how people got to where they were and what what maybe obstacles or what choices were put in front of them. Because obviously to have done what you have done in your career, you would have had to have liked it and been passionate about it. And Curious to know how you found that passion. So as I understand, you're a New York guy at heart, living in Boston currently. But if you could if you could talk to us now about kind of where you grew up and a little bit about your childhood leading you up to high school and all the way into Harvard, I think that would be a good way to start this off. Sure. Wow, you're taking me way back, Alex. Um, <laughs> but yes, I grew up in the middle of Brooklyn, the Midwood area. I don't think that's become hip yet in terms of the areas of Brooklyn that people go tour. But I went to um, went straight up through the public school program. And I was a science nerd. I was a chess nerd. At, at the time, chess was hot. It's, it's hot again on Netflix, for example. But at the same time, I had an incredible passion for music. I played saxophone, I music conducted school shows. And so at the same time, I had the hardcore science and math. I also had this creative yearning from the music side, which of course is related to science and math, but it's so expressive. And it was just a, a part of me that was really important. There was a lot from theater that mattered to me about working in teams, creating something, managing on the fly when things go wrong, really thinking about how things are going to have to come together. There was just a lot of pipe that was subtly laid when I was especially in high school, doing a lot with theater and music. 
that I think led me to the kinds of decisions I made later, especially going into professional services, working with client teams towards helping people get to outcomes, understanding that you're serving an audience, you're working together with people, coming up with ideas, being creative. I think there were a lot of things that were continuous there in my life. So if you thought about through lines um, through there, but yeah, I was um, mostly focused on science and math academically, thought I might be pre-med, but then I saw open heart surgery on TV. I couldn't even sit through it. Uh, I had to run gasping for air to the window. And I said, there's no way I'm going into medicine. And so I uh, thought about other things. I, I did. I got into Harvard and then uh, explored a bit, had an amazing economics professor, really made economics sound like what was going on in the real world. So I, I focused on economics. I also took a lot of music courses. I what, 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 did you, what was your major at, at undergrad? It was economics. I majored in economics and then I took also just a ton of music courses also. Did, did you go did you go into Harvard thinking that you were going to keep pursuing music and that music would eventually be your career or your life's work or you weren't really sure? I knew I wasn't good enough to, in music to be a musician, but I wanted it to be a part of my life. And so once I was in Harvard, actually my undergraduate thesis was on the music recording business. I did a lot of interviews with executives. I, they would talk to me. It was pretty amazing. Um, this kid in college, they would talk to. So I learned a lot about the music business and I thought maybe I'd go into that. But then as I got into it and I saw what people really were doing day to day, it didn't quite get me as excited. Sure. Uh, then I learned about consulting and how a lot of the ways consultants work just had parallels to the things that turned me on. Uh, from a theater perspective, things I was mentioning before, working in teams, being creative, serving clients, really thinking hard about problem solving. So uh, I did that for a couple of years with Booz Allen and Hamilton and then applied to business school and uh, went back to Harvard for business school. And while I was there, I started to realize that marketing as a functional area was going to be where my passions got turned on. Around what year, around what year was this? Oh my God, you're going to actually date me. Um, so yes, I, I graduated from business school in 86. Okay. So around, around the year in 1986, you start to focus your attention on marketing. Yes. Because marketing to me was about growth. That, so from an economic perspective, it was really about growth as opposed to just cost cutting. It was around the psychology of people. It sure. around connecting with them emotionally, but it also has a science to it. So there was a creative side and a science side that, again, I, I think just connected back to my right brain, left brain way of thinking that but was was part. marketing was marketing at, at business school at Harvard Business School. Was that a, was that a focus? Like, was that an option or because it was a concentration or was it still fairly kind of new territory? at Harvard, they don't really have concentrations as such. So I just took more courses in it. And those courses were the most interesting to me. Okay. And then after business school, that's when you started at BCG, is that right? Yeah, I started at the Boston Consulting Group. I wanted to be in the Boston area because I really loved being up there. My wife-to-be was from Maine. And so instead of, you know, neither of us really wanted to go to New York, Boston, sure. right in the middle is a good balance. And then at BCG, very quickly, I got pulled into marketing-oriented projects. I had been pretty vocal about my interests, and so happened the client flow was there. 
and it was before the internet, believe it or not. Yeah. Um, but it was when customer data was starting to get into the flow of questions that people were asking. So for example, Citi, who was managing the credit card operations for several retailers, realized it was sitting on all this data. And so they were wondering, what could we do with this? Could we create loyalty programs? Well, how would that be managed? What value would those create? And so I started poking around that. And then another example of a study was for Time Inc. magazines, when that existed, where they came up with a technology called selective binding, which was the ability to put different pages in different people's magazines on a much more selective basis for targeted advertising. And so all of this started churning in my mind that with all of this data and with delivery capabilities, we're likely moving towards eventually something that would get to segment of one marketing. And together with some other folks at BCG came up with that concept. And that was really my ticket. I started writing about it, speaking about it, and working with clients on projects that were all around using data to be more granular in how they thought about strategy in terms of pricing, in terms of customer service, in terms of go-to-market. And then eventually the internet started becoming something real, and then it really brought it all to life. Sure. And things really took off at that point. During the time before the internet, on the focus of data, what tools were available to acquire the data, analyze the data, make sure you could rely on the data, and prove to customers or potential customers that you actually had as much of a 100% of a view as you can get on uh, data they could rely on so you could help them make decisions. Because I, I asked that question because today, you know, maybe for the last seven years, you know, date, there's, there's, there's so much data at this point in time. I think a lot of the issue companies have is they're not sure what to do with all of it. And obviously a lot of people want to make sure that they can rely on it and so on. But I feel like in the era before the internet, data wasn't as common of a focus point as it is now. So how were you getting data? How did you know you could rely on it? And how difficult or not difficult was it to utilize that and convince potential clients that they should be looking at that in relation to how they're making decisions? Yeah, well, Alex, in selected industries, they were starting to gather data. So for example, telecom companies had examples of the kinds of calling patterns that people had. They knew when they called into customer service, what problems they had, they saw their bills. So they had basic billing, customer service and usage data. The banks, especially credit card companies, were starting to collect those. And sure. some were very sophisticated in the way they modeled it. I mean, Capital One built a whole business really going on the edge of lending because of their prowess in using all of that data. So you started, you saw some of the retailers getting scanning data and using private label credit card data that they would work with the banks to use. So you started to see, and of course it wasn't 100%, but then you also had companies that were already going around to all the city halls and the records and gathering for direct mail databases of people who just moved, for example, people who had just bought a house or had a baby, and those were used for targeting. So there was a lot of bits and pieces all over the place that was just starting to come together. And there was opportunity in that. For sure. When you look back on your time at BCG, is there anything that comes to mind as the projects or the work that you did that is the stuff that you're most fond of even till today? And I know that's early on in your career, but it seems like you personally have been on the cutting edge of so many things that now seem mainstream today that weren't mainstream when you were working on them. 
I, I just am curious, just as you're early on in your career, postgraduate school, working on things that weren't that connected to people, it was a lot of forward thinking stuff. Is, is there any initiatives or projects from your early days there that you look back on now that, you know, brings back some good memories of good work that you did? Yeah, well, probably the one that comes to mind the most is one we did for AT&T before it was AT&T today. A lot of people may not remember, <laughs> but originally AT&T was the only phone company. And then there was the consent decree that spun off the local businesses. And then they were just really a long distance carrier. And they, they sold long distance service. Believe it or not, that was something that used to be sold. Yes. And they yeah, and the internet was just, just starting, but they had the foresight to ask, where is this gonna go? Is this something we should be worried about? So it was the first time I really learned about what the internet was really about. And there were some real basic things about the way the technology worked, that it was packet switching versus circuit switching, which was a lot more efficient than moving whole circuits, for example. And so basically we said, the internet could destroy AT&T's business. At the time, a large percent of their profit was fax traffic, especially fax traffic overseas to Asia. That was all going to vanish. All of that was going to vanish. The whole concept of measuring things in terms of time and distance and charging for it was going to vanish when you move to a packet switching network. And so we basically said, this is not going to go well for you. And that was one of the things that ignited AT&T's complete transformation. And they eventually got sold to one of the originally local phone companies, Southwest Bell, and that got them reframed as the new AT&T, adding in cell business as well along the way. So that really kicked off the, the transformation of AT&T from what it was to what it is, was really seeing all the ramifications of what the internet could do. In terms of consulting in general, it seems like big, small companies in general, you utilize consulting companies when there are problems that they think that, that are just too big to solve. Because in, in our organization, we get exposed to a number of different consulting firms that partner with us on different, on different initiatives and different business groups that we've got. And we get to meet all different types of great people from different types of consulting and services organizations. But it seems to be that the cool part of being in that world on your side is that you get to come in in a situation, whether it be with AT&T or whatever the, the big problem is of the day, they're basically looking to you guys as to be the smartest people in the room to help them not only survive the changes that are coming, but to also thrive in those changes. I'm curious from your perspective, during a, a time of transformation, what would you say are the most important things companies, when they're going through, whether it's digital transformation or whether dealing with an uncertain ec uh, economy, like when a pandemic occurs and they've got to rework their business model, what would you say in terms of traits, personality traits, company traits, people should realize and think about in terms of what's needed to kind of get on the other side to be okay, to feel good on the other side? What would you say those would be? Those are things that often consultants maybe can't help as much with. One of the biggest being culture and the sense of how employees feel bonded to the company, their sense of, is the company really looking out for them? Do they believe in the mission? Does the company support them with what they need to do a good job? And the vast majority of people want to do a good job. They want to have impact. They want to see something happen as a result of what they do. They also, the vast majority of people, take joy in working with the people around them. They feel a sense of community and belonging. And so creating the right kind of company culture 
that is really geared towards a shared sense of mission is key so that in a transformation, if some of the details of how you get to that mission are going to change, people still recognize that the mission is still there and they're willing to be more flexible in what they can do to get to that mission because they're focused on getting there. A lot of that has to do with leadership and the tone of the people at the top. A lot of it has to do with brand and your sense of what a brand is about and why a brand exists in the world. We haven't started talking about Aetna yet, but I think one of the most powerful things that we did, Aetna, was reframe Aetna from being a more conventional insurance company that was, in the words of our former CEO, you know, a warranty card where people got sick, something happened, Aetna paid, to be, instead of that, a partner helping people in their health journey. Because if Aetna can help you stay healthy, you're healthier, you save money, they save money, lots of good things happen. It's the right thing for everybody. That's a sense of mission that people can really get behind. That inspires a lot more passion than being a warranty card provider, you know, essentially. Sure. So that leadership that leads to a sense of mission and that can embed that sense of mission in the culture, they will find themselves able to get their employees to be a lot more agile and flexible when you've got to make changes. I want to talk about your time at Edna because that, from what I understand, was the first brand you worked for outside of like My the first, first client side job, correct. The first client side brand that, that you had worked for. So I definitely am curious to know why them, because I'm sure with the experience that you had, there were plenty of places you could have gone. And I'm curious why Aetna, why that timing and what the motivation was for you to take that route so to speak. But you, you mentioned a lot of things in terms of culture and the importance of the brand for CMOs all over the world that work for some of the biggest brands that we see every day, Walmart, Amazon, Burger King, McDonald's, their, their role as the more digital we become and the more the internet consumes our lives and mobile phones consume our lives, their, their mandates are, you know, they could be pretty broad, but also pretty specific. If you were assisting in the search for, let's say, a Fortune 50 or Fortune 100 company to find the right type of CMO, what sort of background would you think would be needed or what sort of experiences, and we're going to talk about experiences because I know you have a lot to say about that as well, what, what sort of experiences and background would be important for you when looking at if they could be the type of CMO needed to kind of take on what's what's happening now in the digital transformation era and what's happening in the future. What sort, of, what sort of things would you think would be important to you to see that things that life experiences or career experiences they would, have, they would have gone through? One of the most important things if you come in as a top CMO is going to be your relationship with the rest of the C-suite. As good as a marketer you may be in terms of the technical nature, you're only as good as your ability to get the broader leadership team behind what you're trying to do. Get them believing in the brand. Get them understanding what you're saying about customer needs. Get them realizing that investing in marketing drives growth. And so you've got to be a voice in the executive suite. And so one of the most important things is just your experience in guiding executives and persuading and moving executives towards a common goal. You know, in my case, that was a lot of what I did in consulting. I did that with many, many clients, worked in the leadership suite, also in the boardroom for clients, getting them behind certain big changes that they needed to do and that they, they wanted to do, getting them rallied. And I think that's often underestimated 
when we talk a lot about technical capabilities, it is also that leadership and sense of building momentum across a leadership team that's important. Then, of course, you need to understand the left brain and the right brain of marketing. It really is both. And you know, starting with the right brain on the creative side, somebody who can think conceptually about where a brand needs to go, understands the issues of tapping into the emotion of markets and can talk about whatever brand you're looking at, where their emotional core lies and where it might need to go. And who's really thinking about that emotional connection that needs to get strengthened, built, maybe reshaped, maybe expanded. But then they also have to understand all the left side of the brain too. They have to understand the digital marketing stack and what is the art of the possible with the digital marketing stack. What can you do in terms of building relationships, being efficient, being fast, running agile, test and learn, and constantly improving and using that data to get ever sharper in terms of the, the way you go to market. If it's a B2B company, they have to have really worked together with sales in terms of creating end-to-end -end lead generation, lead cultivation, management, disposition of leads, ongoing relationships with B2B clients. You know, I actually was a CMO for some of McKinsey for the one of the practice areas and also for Digitas for a stretch. So I had a sense from a B2B perspective as well for them as the client side, how to build that. So it, it's certainly all those right and left brains and being up to speed on that, but it is also that sense of the leadership suite and feeling like you can be a catalyst in it. How much do you think a CMO today coming into an organization has to battle the existing CEO, board, executive team to prove marketing's worth at the table? Whereas I know this was a topic that comes up from time to time and maybe more so a decade ago, it seemed to be more of kind of like a fight where some CMOs were having a tough time proving or being able to illustrate the value that marketing can bring both from a cultural perspective and from an external revenue perspective. Now in 2020, heading into 2021, in your best estimate, do you think CMOs in general, whether they're new or they're legacy CMOs that have been there for a while, do you think it's much of a struggle still to get CEOs on side, get CFOs on side to spend money, get boards to buy in about how valuable the right marketing engine can be? It's hard to make generalizations, Alex, because a lot of times it depends why you're being brought in. I was fortunate enough to be brought into Edna because they wanted that. I mean, that's why they brought in their first chief marketing officer. They hadn't had experience with it. They hadn't had that kind of marketing leadership, but they wanted it and were open to it. And the reactions I got were not, no, people didn't say no. They said, how? How do you do that? Because they didn't know. They hadn't done it before. So it was more proving credibility that it could be done versus just fighting an uphill battle that we had to change. I, I didn't have to fight that uphill battle. It was more a question of getting alignment on the pathway from people who just didn't have as much experience with it. So I think it varies depending on the company. You know, in B2B companies, you know, a lot of them are very sales driven. And so for marketing, it could be more of a challenge. But it really varies all over the place. I do get the sense, though, it also changes based on the pressures of the times. In a recession and you're looking to save expenses, marketing often could be a place where you cut if you don't yes. think growth is inherently going to be there. If you're struggling, but you think there is growth, then marketing becomes a place to invest because you want to be able to build your position and grow. So a lot of it is 
is contextual. It often changes if there's a change in leadership, it changes in terms of the change of uh, market conditions. But you know, marketing does often struggle from a CFO's perspective with how to always prove the bottom line impact because there's not always, uh, for many things marketing does, there's not a straight line to ROI. Sure. So that leads me to Aetna, which obviously was a big, which is a big undertaking for you and for Aetna, because as you, as you mentioned, you were their first ever chief marketing officer. What was it about Aetna that drew you to leave the world that you knew very well, go to the client side and work not just for a brand, but one of the most well-known companies, if not in the country, but in the world, definitely in their space. What was it about the situation at Aetna, the conversations you were having before making that decision where you realized that that was the right move for you? There were a couple of things that really got me excited. One was that the company really did want to change. They were making a pivot from being a company that just basically offered insurance and was you know, very narrowly financial to one that was trying to be a health company focused on helping people get healthier. And in order to do that, you needed to build your brand. You needed to build customer experience because you had to have trust. People had to trust you if they were going to take advice from you and support you. Did you them. face, uh, I'm sorry, Dave, did you face an issue where consensus was from consumers that insurance companies were tough to deal with and maybe insurance oh, companies absolutely. not always had, because I know some people feel about their insurance companies because insurance in general, whether it's in healthcare or whether you're buying insurance for your house, that when it is needed, sometimes consumers feel that insurance companies don't always have their best interests at heart. Was part of that the mission to try to show to the world that you know we actually do care about consumers and proving that out? Absolutely. And to be member-centric in the way we were going to transform the company and to think about the member in the design of products, policies, operations, and bring that to the table. And there hadn't been as a voice like that beforehand. So that was one side, was that change? But there was also another part of it that was really inspiring. The guy who hired me in, Gary Loveman, who isn't there now, but the former CEO, Mark Bertolini, and the current CEO now, Karen Lynch, who was just promoted to be all of CVS Health, they believed, all of them, that the key was getting people to change their health behaviors. And marketing was very important to that because marketing is about getting people to change their behaviors. And if we were going to get people to change their behaviors, marketing was going to have to be a key part of that. And one of the thing capabilities that we built were a behavior change program based on very rapid testing and learning, trying different creatives, using data, being very analytic about who we would focus on, what we needed them to do to get healthier. And it was all around next best actions to help people improve their health. And that was very inspiring. My God, sure. mission basically saying, you know, that one of the keys to fixing healthcare is marketing is going to save healthcare. And, you know, we started down the path to do that. We made a, the company still on a great momentum towards that, just made some real progress in building those capabilities. In relation to, I guess, the healthcare industry, because insurance companies, consumers, I mean, everybody is affected by healthcare policy. Right. And what's coming out of Washington, D.C. primarily. And there's always discussion. I mean, the Supreme Court yesterday was taking up the Affordable Care Act again from a lawsuit that they were getting from the state of Texas. This is always such like a hot button topic, especially around the time of an election. And I just wonder, especially because you, you were there from 2016 to 2020. Is that right? 
Correct. And I, I just, I wonder from, especially in your role with, with such a purview of the customer, if you feel that insurance companies, it sounds like Aetna's done it and wants to do it, but insurance companies in general are noticing the importance of consumer sentiment and how patients and just everyday people feel about the relationship and the trust they have with their insurance company. How, like how much of that played a part in every decision that you made in terms of making Aetna customers and members feel like you had their back? I don't think it was only because of public policy threat. It, it, it was really around the competitive market of making them feel as though Aetna has their back. I mean, look, there are parts of the business such as Medicare Advantage that is a direct-to-consumer sales business. It is very competitive. Sure. And brand matters and experience matters. So, you know, right there, you've got a direct-to-consumer business where you've got to show that you are worthy of a consumer's business. You know, right there, that's very important. In some areas of the Medicaid business, which is state-funded, consumers have a choice. They can move from one carrier to another. Not all, but some they do. So again, customer experience matters. And even on the commercial side, where insurance is through your employer, people do have in some employers an opportunity to choose among carriers. Mm -hmm. um, that's called slice, when they slice it up and they give the employees a choice. So you have a competitive situation. And if someone's in a two-career household, you're always competing against the spouse's insurance. Sure. So there's a lot of situations where brand really matters. That all being said, from a public policy perspective, of course, insurance companies want the public to recognize their value in the market. They want that all the time. I mean, any business does. Every business wants their customers to recognize their value in the market. And frankly, I think Something like Medicare Advantage, where the government pays private insurers to manage healthcare for the people who choose Medicare Advantage, is a great deal for the government because the government gets cost savings from the management that the insurance companies do, but then they balance that with a whole program called STARS that yeah. rewards quality and care. So you've got the carrot and the stick, and that's a program that works to give consumers you know, the right balance of cost management, but a quality incentive as well. And, and so personally, I find it hard to believe a government on its own can manage all those elements together. Medicare Advantage does a very good job of doing that. Not everybody understands the healthcare system. They don't yeah. understand the roles that private insurers play. I know that's something that the insurance business is working hard to improve. Okay, so that, that, let's take, that takes us up to this year, which is the year that you left Aetna. Mm -hmm. I guess tell the audience, uh, I, I want to, I like to know, obviously, a lot about all the great stuff that you've done in your career, but I know you're not finished yet. And there's a lot of good stuff that you plan to be doing and are already doing that is exciting. I know some of that you're going to talk about at our program next month, which I, I know our executives are going to be excited to hear. And I know a lot of it deals around experiences and the importance of experiences in marketing just in general. So I'd like for you to, for our audience to speak to what you're up to, why this is what you're focusing on now, and um, why you think it's important for businesses of all kinds to pay attention. I've been now a free agent for a couple of months and what I've decided to focus on is, in some respects, it's, it's back to my roots, saying that the world is moving towards segment of one. Everything from a marketing and a service and a technology capability is moving towards that. The problem is 
that it's complicated and it's hard to manage. And there's a lot of cost involved in adding more and more technology or having finer and finer segmentation. You have to create more content. You have more data to keep track of. And yet there is this just unstoppable march towards it. And so I've decided I'm focusing a lot on plugging into, in marketing and in healthcare, the ecosystem of smaller companies who are bringing artificial intelligence or other kinds of capabilities to enable more personalization, agility, real-time management at scale. And to be able to have companies take advantage of the promise of segment of one and real-time responsiveness without having to just go crazy on the complexity front. Having seen firsthand how challenging that is, as you want to go finer and finer in terms of your segmentation, I'm realizing now there's a lot of nascent capabilities out there that can make that work, ranging from personalizing videos. And I'll talk about this. Um, a company called Sunday Sky that personalizes sure. videos. Another called Elsie, E-L-S-Y, that allows you to manage all of your media, all of it across all channels in real time, like a hedge fund manager would, an investment portfolio, being able to understand it, make projections, create scenarios, and move that around. You know, another company called OfferFit that allows you to learn and test all kinds of different offers to different customers and then figure out the right way to optimize them from an economic perspective to which customers, which ones. Another Persado that focuses on language, literally the words that you use and how to optimize different words to different people based on certain behaviors. And so there's just this whole range of capabilities that are out there that can be applied in healthcare and marketing and such that are using the power now that technology can do to let you get finer and finer and meet people with whom they are, but to take more of the complexity off your hands. So when it, when it comes to healthcare, for, for example, when we talk about experience design specifically, why is that so critical for healthcare companies? Experience design is critical because it, in the end, is what's going to overall drive better health outcomes and lower cost in the system, which is what everybody wants. If you don't, if you leave it to the kinds of experiences that consumers have now, which are often really fragmented, I have to go here for this, and then the insurance company covers this, the provider does this, this provider, then that provider, they don't talk to each other. It's like being a rat in a maze, which is often the analogy that I use. And you've got to help people stitch it all together in a connected, caring way. If people can have that, it'll be a lot easier for them to take care of themselves, to stay on a program. You know, a big chunk of the cost in our healthcare is for people with chronic conditions. And managing those chronic conditions is a real priority for the health system. But they are chronic conditions. That means there's a longevity to them. There's an ongoing situation that somebody has to manage. That's challenging, but there are a lot of variables that that person does need to manage. There's medication they need to stay on, monitoring they need to do, diet, exercise, check-ins with medical providers that they need to do. 
If you can bring that experience together in a simple, integrated way, the power of helping somebody manage that for themselves is incredible. And it will have impact on the health system. So the tools are there now to do it. The question is how far, how fast can you go? And, and also, can you stitch together the different pieces of the ecosystem to do that? With interoperability now becoming a reality where the government is forcing providers and insurers to share information about a patient if a patient wants to do that, that unlocks a ton of new opportunity. So the time is right now to take advantage of that. And I'll end with just a general leadership question. In terms of segment of one and creating experiences, what do you think or what would be your advice to leaders, you know, marketing leaders, executive teams in general from all different types of industries? What should the leadership focus be on creating experiences? What what sort of like a do's and don'ts would you say should be somewhat of a model that they should consider when they're making decisions on this? I think the most important thing is to understand for different kinds of customers interacting with you, where do they face compromises? Where are they frustrated? I have a saying often, breaking compromises unlocks value. Um, And that came from my days at BCG. And so I, I don't even remember where exactly that came from. But if you really dig in and you understand where people are unable to do something they really want or need to do, there is incredible opportunity in unlocking that. And increasingly, that's things to be able to do on a personalized basis. You know, uh, just some really simple things just in healthcare. If I don't really understand the health plan I bought, how can I really manage the choices I make to have the most cost-efficient best care? It's just hard. And if you survey people and you ask them, what's a deductible, premium, coinsurance, copay, you know, less than 15% are going to get all four right. Yet those are essential parts of understanding your plan. (laughs) So we got to help people through their experience and understand the compromise. Just some of it's just a compromise could be education. A compromise could be there's a, there's time delays that frustrate people. By the time you find out if you're eligible for a surgery, it's after you should have had the surgery, you know, it's, and so there's frustrations there. So there's, there's timing issues, there's handoff issues, different parties involved, and the handoff doesn't go smoothly. So look at where there are compromises and figure out how to break those compromises. Some of those may be around personalization, some of those may not. But from an experience perspective, that's usually where you're going to find the value. Then what a lot of these segment of one tools allow you to do is track for an individual what's happening to them, what their situation is, enable you to serve them better, and ideally enable you to do that in real time. But you first have to really figure out before you start throwing all kinds of technology, what is it that people need to have the best experience? Where are the compromises that you need to break? Sounds good. Dave, I think that, I mean, we could keep talking for a long time, but I'm sure you've got, I'm sure you've got things that you need to do for the rest of the day. Thank you so much uh, for doing this interview. 
we appreciate all the time that you give us at the Millennium Alliance. Congratulations on a great career and all the wonderful things that you've done. Definitely an inspiration uh, amongst our members, not just to the marketers, but to everybody, which is why I was so excited to learn more about you. And for those interested to learn more from David, like I had said, he'll be keynoting our digital healthcare program December 3rd to open up the event. So if you want to hear more specifically about his focus points on healthcare and where the industry's going and how to make sure things go in the right direction, you should tune into that as well. But thanks again, Dave. I'm sure we'll speak soon. My pleasure. Thank you, Alex. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to check out some of our other episodes exclusively on Digital Diary.